1: Thank you, Clark Anthony. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 446 live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday, brought to you today in part by the ICD University Bookstore. And joining me as my co-host is the extraordinarily popular and the highly authoritative Dr. Erica Reamer, the founder and the president of Erica Reamer, M.D. Incorporated. And good morning, Erica.
2: Thank you, Chuck, and good morning, everyone.
1: Our lead story this morning is a topic that you brought to our attention.
2: That's right, Chuck. This morning we're talking about patient safety indicators, PSIs, and in particular PSI 9, perioperative hemorrhage or hematoma rate.
1: In addition to bringing this topic to our attention, you also brought our special guest to our attention.
2: That's right. Our special guest today is Dr. Ahmed Abu-Abdu. He is the Chief Medical Officer and the Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Arkansas Medical Sciences, and an active participant in the American College of Physician Advisors CDI Education Committee.
1: Excellent, excellent. And looking forward to hearing more about that.
2: And you will.
1: Also, on today's Talk 10 Tuesdays, is going to be Terry Fletcher. Terry's going to be reporting on coding for telehealth services.
2: And Lori Johnson is here today with the Talk 10 Tuesdays coding report.
1: What are you going to be discussing during your TalkBack segment?
2: Well, I'm going to be talking about my opinion on whether post-procedural hemorrhages can be integral to the procedure.
1: Wow. We have much news reporting. from beginner begin with Tim Powell, who is at the Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk.
0: The Talk 10 Tuesday News Desk is sponsored by MedLearn Publishing. For more than 25 years, MedLearn Publishing has delivered actionable answers that equip healthcare organizations to confidently meet their revenue and compliance obligations. Visit shop.medlearn.com to purchase your 2021 MedLearn
3: Publishing Resources.
1: Here now is Tim Powell.
3: Thanks, Chuck. And I'd like to start by giving my sympathy to the 1,792 Americans that lost their lives to COVID-19 yesterday. Now, let's talk about the Medicare, how the Medicare system may actually be driving salary inequalities in health care. In 1984, Medicare created what is called the prospective Payment System or PPS. It replaced a previous system of cost reimbursement. Indeed, one of my jobs for many years has been to prepare what are still called Medicare cost reports. In PPS, reimbursement rates are set before a period begins, so the rates are prospective. The underlying costs do not have a direct impact on actual reimbursement for virtually all Medicare providers under PPS. The idea was that all providers would be paid the same amount for providing the same services, and that cost reimbursement promoted excessive costs. This is nice in theory, but in reality, the more heavily financed providers. And wealthier parts of the country get paid more, a lot more. The biggest driver of this inequality has to do with an adjustment based on regional wages to PPS payments. Medicare broke down medicare base rates in the PPS system between labor and non-labor components. When PPS was was created, providers in wealthy areas argued that their average salary costs were higher, and therefore reimbursement should be adjusted based on the average salaries or the wage index of each area. The highest current wage index is 1.8501, while the lowest is 3.3714. Since the wage-related portion is larger than the non-related portion, that means that the hospital with the highest wage index gets paid two and a half times more than the hospital with the lowest, lowest wage index for the same inpatient service type. I think that higher Medicare reimbursement rates create market incentives for employees to ask for higher salaries. Considering Medicare's share of the healthcare market, we should consider the impact that Medicare payment policies have on the inequality within our current system of, healthcare payment, of payments to healthcare workers. And with that, back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Tim, very much. That was Tim Powell. Tim is a compliance expert and an ICD-10 Monitor national correspondent. It's Tuesday, January the 26th, 2021, and as of today, the death toll for the coronavirus 19 is now 421,000. This is Talked in Tuesday, Standby.
0: If you thought that ICD-10-CM coding for COVID-19 will get easier with time, Be aware of significant changes for 2021, most notably new codes with greater specificity. Not understanding or applying these changes can jeopardize your revenues and compliance, as well as impede our collective ability to better understand the disease. Good news, ICD-10 Monitor offers a kit with all the changes you need to know for 2021. Included in this kit are coding flowcharts, and webcasts provided guidance to accurate, compliant coding assignments while boosting coder productivity. Visit shop.icd10monitor.com
1: to order your COVID-19
0: coding kit.
1: Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday Coding Report is Laurie Johnson, and good morning, Lori Johnson.
4: Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, Erica, and hello to our listeners. This morning, I'd like to discuss the ICD-10 codes that are associated with PSI-9, which is perioperative hemorrhage or hematoma rate. There are approximately 60 diagnosis codes for postoperative hemorrhage or hematoma. To find these codes, there are multiple ways in the index for ICD-10-CM. If you use the main term of hematoma or hemorrhage, the instructions to see complications, post-procedure by site will display complications, hematoma, or hemorrhage, post-procedural. The instruction, see complications, post-procedural, hemorrhage, hematoma, also appears. The next path is complications, post-procedural, and the instruction to see also complications, surgical procedure is shown. If you press forward in this current path under complications post-procedural hematoma or hemorrhage, the codes are displayed by body system of the hematoma or hemorrhage and the relationship between the hematoma or hemorrhage and where the procedure was performed. This is best understood with a couple of examples. A circulatory hematoma followed following a cardiac cath- catheterization is assigned I-97.630. A circulatory hematoma following a procedure in another body system, such as a total knee replacement, is assigned I-97.621. There are approximately 4,000 ICD-10 PCS codes for this PSI. They describe procedures used to treat the perioperative hematomas or hemorrhages. The root operations include drainage, repair, extirpation, revision, destruction, release, occlusion, excision, restriction, control, and introduction. The specific diagnoses and procedures can be found at www.qualityindicators.ahrq.org gov website, and that URL is displayed under my picture on your screen. Well, Erica, that wraps up the diagnosis and procedure codes for PSI-,
2: PSI 9. Back to you. Thank you, Lori. That was Lori Johnson, Senior Healthcare Consultant for Revenue Cycle Solutions, LLC.
1: Here now with the Talk 10 Tuesday, Tuesday Focus is Terry Fletcher, and good morning, Terry.
5: Good morning, Chuck, and good morning, everyone. So when public health emergency was extended to another 90 days on January 7th, taking us through April 21st, 2021, so were the CARES Act flexibilities under the 1135 waiver. This allows for telehealth to continue to be covered under Medicare. Under this temporary mandate, there has been widespread irregularities and fraud schemes reported and audited, and because of this, the OIG put telehealth services on their 2021 work plan. It will look at the extent to which telehealth services are being used by Medicare beneficiaries, how the use of these services compare to the use of the same services in person, and the different types of providers and beneficiaries using telehealth services. One of the rules under the 1135 waiver is that if the provider is billing for services that have no video capabilities, the CPT and HCPCS coding options are either virtual check-ins, G2012 or G2010, or telephone visits, 99441 to 99443, which were opened up for reimbursement only during the PAG. However, many medical practices may have not adhered to those rules and billed audio-only services incorrectly as office visits and now may be under close scrutiny. With CMS audits starting last August and the OIG now adding telehealth services to their work plan for 2021, Medical practices need to self-audit their telehealth services to make sure they can withstand in Medicare or even a commercial insurance audit when requested. The following question was posted on the CMS FAQ sheet in April and September and continues to be accurate in the current FAQ sheet dated January, 20, January 14th. Can a regular office visit code 99202-205 or to 215 be used for just a phone call between the provider and the patient that does not include video capability? The answer is no. The provider must use telecommunication application, which mandates audio and visual under the waiver 1135 when billing for any e service that is not a phone call code. The patient can use their smartphone or cell phone for the doctor to patient phone calls, and most cell phones do have that video chat option, like FaceTime, Skype, Facebook uh, video chat, which under the PHE is acceptable. The CPT codes for audio-only phone calls are found under 99441 to 443 for MDs, DOs, PAs, and nurse practitioners, and 98966 to 98968 for certain QHPs, like clinical social workers or physical therapists. Again, those codes are only temporary during the PHE, and CMS has stated in the final rule for 2021 they will not continue to reimburse for phone calls when the PHE ends. Make sure you're also familiar with Medicare virtual check-in codes. As they've been available prior to the PHE and will be available after. The difference between those phone call codes and the virtual check-in is that phone call codes are based on time and are used for patients who do not have audio and video capability, and this is the only option for their encounter. For 2021 and once the PHE ends, Medicare created an additional HCPCS code, G2252, and that is to be utilized for patients, again, who do not have video technology, but need a phone call, a medical discussion, or an encounter. Now, the uh, virtual check-in codes; those are a little bit different. These are services that you could utilize now and after PAG to determine if a patient needs to come in for an encounter. G2012, in contrast, these are created as a brief audio-only code to determine is the patient uh, can the patient be treated over the phone and just given treatment and said you don't need to come in for a visit. Or do they need to come in? If they end up having to come in for an encounter, then you would not report this code. If they don't, then you can report the G2012. Just protect your telehealth services from being retrospectively audited, and make sure you are and are continuing to follow the rules for audio-only services while they're still reimbursable. And with that, Erica, back to you.
2: You know, Terry, it really gives... uh Uh, Me as a clinician an appreciation for what the coders do because as a doctor, I just want to take care of the patient. So if I touch base with them by phone, I'm not really like in my head, I'm not thinking is this a virtual check-in, is this a telehealth, is this a phone call only, like I just want to take care of the patient and then you poor coders have to go and sort out what it really was and and charge for it, I, I really, I feel for you. Thank you, Terry. Thank you. That was nationally recognized professional auditor and coder, Terry Fletcher. Chuck?
1: Thank you, Erica, and thank you again, Terry, very much. And you can read Terry's reporting on this very timely and important topic in today's ICD-10 Monitor. Can a post-procedural hemorrhage or hematoma be unavoidable? Well, you're going to learn the answer when Dr. Erica Reamer joins us for her Talk Back segment. But coming up next is our lead story. This is Talk in Tuesday. It's a broadcast service of ICD-10 Monitor. Stand by.
0: for telehealth have been relaxed to account for restrictions being imposed to curb the spread of coronavirus. Get the latest update on how Medicare will reimburse for office and other visits furnished via telehealth. Join an exclusive ICD-10 Monitor webcast this Thursday, January 28th at 1 30 p.m. Eastern. Register now to attend telehealth update. Learn how to stay compliant and protect your reimbursement. The exclusive webcast features nationally recognized professional coder and auditor Terry Fletcher. Register at the ICD University Bookstore to attend. Telehealth update. Learn how to stay compliant and protect reimbursement. It is this Thursday, January 28th at 1.30 p.m. Eastern.
1: Our lead story this morning is about Patient Safety Indicator 9, PSI 9. Here now to report our lead story is Dr. Ahmed Abu Abadu, good morning, sir.
6: Good morning, Chuck, and thank you for having me today on Talk 10 Tuesdays. Today, I would like to share with the ICD-10 Monitor audience the importance of coagulopathy documentation and its impact on perioperative hemorrhage and hematoma, also known as patient safety indicator, PSI 9. We have long been focused on improving documentation for the purpose of maximizing the capture of major comorbidity complications, MCCs, and comorbidity complications, CCs. However, as value-based purchasing is growing more and more, the importance of improving documentation becomes more relevant and important. However, most importantly, and this is the theme we should always promote, is documentation for patient care. If we do that, then everything else, revenue and quality metrics, will fall in the right place. For a case to be included in PSI 9 measure, an index procedure which was performed in the operating room is required. A secondary ICD-10-CM diagnosis code for perioperative hemorrhage or hematoma must be present. And any listed ICD-10-PCS procedure code for treatment of hemorrhage or hematoma must be performed, whether at bedside or in the operating room. While the measure is titled as perioperative hemorrhage or hematoma, essentially all diagnosis codes listed in the AHRQ specification document, version 2020, are post-procedural hemorrhage or hematoma. A clinically valid post-procedural hemorrhage or hematoma requires explicit documentation by the attending surgeon establishing cause and effect relationship. Unlike other PSIs, PSI 9 is not impacted by the admission type, elective, urgent, or emergent. It means that this measure is applicable to all comers into the organization. It means that in urgent or emergent admissions where the attending surgeon does not have the ample time to prep the patient comprehensively in terms of the coagulation system, the opportunity of documenting coagulopathy when appropriate and clinically valid becomes invaluable. The diagnosis of coagulopathy serves as an exclusion from the PSI 9 measure. In addition to coagulopathy, coagulation disorders such as pancytopenia, disseminated intravascular coagulation, DIC, von Wilbrandt's disease, hemophilia, and thrombocytopenia do serve as exclusion to PSI-9 reporting. Interestingly enough, the majority of coagulopathy codes that provide exclusion were risk adjusted the DRG, SCC, or MCC. If the patient is maintained on antiplatelets, such as aspirin or clopidogrel, and or anticoagulants such as warfarin, apixaban, or dabigatran, then the documentation of coagulopathy due to anticoagulation or antiplatelet use, which, if linked to the bleeding, becomes clinically valid. Specifying the underlying ideology of coagulopathy is always recommended to consolidate the clinical validity of the diagnosis. If coagulopathy is documented on the basis of abnormal rotem, rotational thromboelastometry, which is a point-of-care test to assess platelet function and coagulation primarily used in the context of trauma liver transplantation, then additional clinical relevance, such as the need for type and screen in anticipation of blood products transfusion, namely fresh frozen plasma, to help achieve homeostasis will solidify the validity of the diagnosis. Please remember that an abnormal coagulation profile by itself is not an exclusion from the PSI-9 reporting. When quitting attending surgeons for coagulopathy, things to take into consideration include cause and effect relationship, was the occurrence unavoidable, and the clinical significance and resource intensity used in the management of the perioperative hemorrhage or hematoma. That's the end of my story. Back to you, Erica. Thank
2: you very much, Ahmed. That was Dr. Ahmed Abu-Abdou. He's the Chief Medical Officer and the Associate Professor of Medicine at the University of Arkansas Medical Sciences.
1: Now it's time for a very popular segment here at Talk 2 Z. It's called Talk Back, and it features our own Dr. Erica Reamer. Dr. Reamer, what's on your mind today?
2: Well, I'm going to piggyback off to what Ahmed was talking about. Um, patient safety indicators serve a valuable um, purpose, trying to prevent potentially avoidable safety events that represent opportunities for improvement in the delivery of care, close quote. If I were looking for a surgeon, I wouldn't want one who had excessive wound dehiscence or accidental punctures or lacerations, and if I were an administrator, I would want to remediate that surgeon. On the other hand, I don't want folks being dinged for PSIs when it's not warranted. I'm the co-chair of the CDI Education Committee of the American College of Physician Advisors, And Ahmed and I are working on educational materials regarding PSI-9, perioperative hemorrhage or hematoma. In order to trigger PSI-9, you have to have a first operation in the operating room, which is followed by the complication of a hemorrhage or hematoma requiring a second intervention, which may be at the bedside or in the operating room. Having a coagulation disorder is essentially the only exclusion criterion, like Ahmed said, Postoperative complications are not produced by merely occurring in the postoperative temporal period. That's what we clinicians think, but the coders know that this is really a um, a bigger issue. The provider needs to assert that the situation is a complication. There must be some sort of assessment, treatment, or intervention, some consumption resources. And there has to be a cause and effect relationship between the condition and the procedure undertaken. The final element is determining that the condition was an unexpected outcome or occurrence resulting from the surgery and or from a pre-existing condition. This is where institutions often perform some pretty intricate maneuvers to try to ward off being tagged as having caused PSIs. I think PSI is getting conflated with PSI 15, so PSI 9 is getting conflated with PSI 15, which is a... Abdomino-pelvic accidental puncture or laceration rate. And this is a patient safety indicator which has already morphed to try to limit its invocation. PSI 9, although called perioperative, really only trips when there is a post-procedural hemorrhage or hematoma, whereas PSI 15 is an intraoperative complication of a laceration or puncture, which requires a second procedure to manage the consequences. Words which extract cases from PSI 15 are unavoidable, integral, or inherent to. If there are copious, dense adhesions, then perhaps that enterotomy was unavoidable. If there is a neoplasm which is very vascular, running into bleeding could be considered inherent to the pathology. Bam. PSI 15 negated. In my opinion, folks are trying to utilize this strategy for PSI 9, but I'm not sure that it's applicable. One of the main principles of surgery is to achieve hemostasis prior to closure. If there is still bleeding, you're supposed to find and eradicate it. I tried to think of scenarios where a post-operative hemorrhage or hematoma would be excusable. I thought of the, patient, uh, the situation where a patient's liver was so damaged that it had to be packed with a return to the OR planned, like after a gunshot wound. But that wasn't a complication of the surgery It was a pre-existing consequence of devastating trauma, so the code wouldn't be a post-procedural hemorrhage code. If a patient were uh, coagulopathic and developed a post-procedural hematoma, you would code it as such, but it would be excluded from PSI 9 because coagulation defect is the exclusion criterion. Is it realistic to expect an incidence of no post-procedural hemorrhages or hematomas anyway? I don't think so. Even the most competent, experienced surgeon runs into an unexpected issue on occasion, and some patients are just poor protoplasm. Sorry, folks, that's our expression. An incidence of zero for PSI 9 would make me, and likely auditors and the government, think there was something hinky in your statistics. So, broken record time. Your providers should practice excellent medicine, do good documentation, and quality metrics and reimbursement will fall where they belong. They need to tell the story, but they also must tell the truth. As a coder or CETIS, don't go through extreme contortions to try to get every post-procedural hemorrhage or hematoma scrubbed. It isn't ethical, it isn't safe for the patients, and it defies clinical documentation Integrity. Support the PSI effort to improve patient care. Query your surgeon when you need to, but don't try to eliminate every PSI. Back to you, Chuck.
1: Thanks, Erica, very much for an outstanding report. We've asked our panelists to remain to answer some of the questions you might have. And, Erica, I see we have one from our good friend, Dr. Hirsch.
2: Dr. Ron Hirsch. Um, asked how many days from the last dose of antiplatelet or anticoagulant use constitute coding coagulopathy?
6: Well, that's a good question, and fundamentally, the documentation of coagulopathy will depend on the physician assessment of um, the bleeding risk associated with the procedure, whether it's mild, moderate, or high risk, uh, high bleeding risk for um, the procedure, and the compliance with the guidelines for perioperative management of anticoagulants. So, for example, if we take Apexaban, um, Apexaban ideally should be stopped um, one day, which are two doses before any mild or moderate risk, bleeding risk uh, procedure. And if it is a high bleeding risk procedure, then four doses of Apexaban or two days prior to the procedure needs to be discontinued. Um, in certain situations where other clinical variables are taken into consideration for prolong- prolonged effect, of anticoagulation, then the physician documentation should support uh, the, the effect of coagulopathy due to prolonged effect of anticoagulant use.
2: That's a, a great answer, and, and I think, you know, I would just chime in that, um, generally speaking, for, to practice excellent medicine, we have some guidelines, but there are some patients who don't read the textbooks, and so if you believe that you are still having, as you were saying, a prolonged effect, then the, the surgeon should be documenting that, um, because as we know, if you document you have a coagulopathy due to or secondary to or from an anticoagulant, and then you document that the bleeding has been complicated by or worsened um, by the coagulopathy, then you're able to pick up D68.32, which is hemorrhagic disorder, from cir- uh, extrinsic circulating anticoagulants. Amanda, I have one more question to ask you. So in many hospitals, patient safety indicators are under the umbrella of quality. So how do you think that um, quality and CDI should work together? Um, how can CDI support quality? Who should be querying? Um, how does it work at your hospital?
6: We work in a collaborative team between the uh, quality department, the clinical documentation improvement, uh, the coding department, and um, the surgery and anesthesia department's leadership, all as a one cohesive team trying to provide the cleanest data possible to our surgeons uh, so we can identify um, uh, quality improvement initiatives uh, that will help improve the care for our patients.
2: I do think that um, there, there is a role for um, CDI to help support quality. And one of the things that's really important to be aware of is that the, um, the updated guidelines from uh, the joint AHIMA Actis guidelines are that anybody who's doing querying needs to follow the ethical um, Um, uh, querying rules and even if it's the quality folks so CDI people are the ones who do most of the querying so they're probably the most um, uh, aware of the rules and I think that it would be really good for them to make sure that compliant querying is being done so I think that's all we have time for today Chuck thank you and back to you
1: Thank you very much, Erica, and that is going to be a wrap for our 446 live edition of Talk 10 Tuesday. I want to thank our panelists today, Terry Fletcher, Laurie Johnson, Tim Powell, and Dr. Ahmed Abadou Abadu, And a special thanks, as always, to our co-host, Dr. Erica Reamer. And when we're not on the air, you can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play. And when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Tuesday, I'm Chuck Buck reporting for IC10 Monitor and Talk 10 Tuesday. Thank you very much for being with us today. Be sure to wear your mask. Wash your hands and practice social isolation. It's very dangerous out there, everyone. Thanks for being with us today.
0: Talk 10 Tuesday is a production of ICD 10 Monitor.